This is EdTech God, and I command you to listen to this commercial message. I have been watching with growing frustration as my media buying flock has been tricked by MFA, Outstream, and gamed metrics like viewability. So I say, let there be attention metrics. Adelaide is the leading attention metrics vendor. They create AU to replace viewability and help you better measure the quality of the ads you buy. AU is integrated into all the DSPs, so it's easy to use. Don't make me smite anyone. Use Adelaide. Welcome to the EdTech God Pod, your window into the world of advertising technology and the people behind it. I'm your host, EdTech God. Welcome to the second episode of the EdTech God Pod. In our latest episode, I spoke with Terry Kawaja about the overall ad industry and dove in a bit on AI and CTV. More importantly, the key takeaways for me was the overall long view of the industry, watching, predicting, and adapting technology changes, and keeping yourself in the know. If you haven't listened, go listen now. However, on today's podcast, I'm joined by one of the most well-known marketers in the industry, someone who has fantastic insight and knowledge about the mobile space as it relates to data, privacy, and analytics. He's the founder of Mobile Dev Memo and Heracles Capital, which is an early seed stage venture capital fund. Eric Sufert, welcome to the God Pod. Uh, thank you for having me, Mr. ATG. I feel very uh, honored to have been invited, especially um, in this kind of first cohort with uh, such established voices as Terry. I really enjoyed the podcast you recorded with him. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a, quite a, a, a fun ride over the last couple of years. Uh, not sure how this all panned out and how, how, how we got here today, but it's been fun. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I think it's something that gets me a little bit outside of my comfort zone and something that I hope to continue to evolve and, and turn into something that benefits everybody. So question for you, Eric, is how did you start Mobile Dev Memo? What got you to the point today to be such a subject matter expert and really voice for the industry as it relates to advertising and marketing? So I went to graduate school for economics in 2008. And I was torn between the program that I chose, which was in London at a, at a university called University College London, and uh, a separate program at Northwestern University uh, in journalism. So I'd actually really wanted to become a journalist. And after undergrad, I had taken a couple stabs at, you know, establishing a, I don't know, call it a writing presence. And I applied to the program at Northwestern. It's uh, the, the journalism school there is, is very um, well respected. It's the medal school. It's arguably the, the number two journalism school in the, well, probably in the world behind Columbia. Um, and I got accepted and it was like $75,000 a year or something like that. And I, I, you know, I don't have any, you know, family money and I was pretty broke as a semi-recent graduate. And, and then the, the program I got into at UCL was in economics and that was, I got a full ride scholarship for that. Plus a, plus a stipend for living expenses. So, I mean, I, I had to go out of pocket a little bit on, on living expenses in London, but for the most part it was free, right? And, or school was free. And so I chose. UCL and I kind of uh, made an agreement with myself that okay I'm I'm not going to pursue this path in journalism I like writing and I I'm going to force myself to continue to write you know even if I'm not doing it professionally and fast forward a couple of years I I'd, I'd finished my my graduate studies I had actually 
spent uh, so it was a master's program, it wasn't a PhD, but I spent the second year in Estonia uh, because I was writing my thesis about the Estonian electricity market, which uh, had been liberalized. And uh, it was just writing about how that the, the liberalization of the uh, Estonian energy market, how that impacted um, prices in the electricity prices in the Nord Pool spot market because they were uh, connected to that the electricity market. And I finished uh, my, my graduate studies and I started working at Skype. Skype was founded in Estonia. If you don't know, Estonia, the Tallinn office was the biggest office, I think, throughout the history of the company. I could be wrong about that. Uh, it may have been Eclipse, but at, you know, early on, it was the biggest office. And I joined Skype as an analyst and I was there at like a very interesting time in consumer tech because this was like 2011. So the app store was like three years old smartphone penetration was accelerating. A lot of people were getting their first ever smartphones and, and Skype historically had been like a desktop Windows app and where they were expanding into was, was smartphones, right? Uh, was mobile. And I thought it was just really fascinating this idea that this app was free. And at, at some point, probably the entirety of this, the, the Skype user base would have the desktop app as well as a smartphone app and then there would be some wholly new segment of skype users that only had a smartphone app and i just thought that was a, a really fascinating business model and so i started looking around at the, the the companies or the market segments that were doing really interesting things with freemium and i noted that there was a sort of density of free-to-play games developers in helsinki finland and so I remember this this moment very clearly. I was I was dating my now wife at the time, and she's she's Estonian. And I was like, "Hey, uh, I'm going to apply for a job for Finland, or I'm going to apply uh, for a job in Finland. What do you think about that?" And she was very upset. But Estonia is is separated um, from from Finland by the Baltic Sea, and there's like regular ferry service. It's not it was long distance, but it's not uh, you know it's less intimidating than than it normally is when you say you're moving to another country, right? And and we ended up just going back and forth like every weekend and, and now we're married so it worked out but uh anyway so i moved to finland i got a job at a free-to-play games developer and i thought you know this is such a fascinating business model i i was certain that it was going to proliferate and be the dominant business model on mobile and so i started a blog about that about just the economics of freemium it was it was just a personal blog it, uh, the, the name was ufert.se uh so it's like big latin for my last name, so you, but I. So you're really a, a writer journalist as a as a as a core. Really, that's that was your passion. You fell into digital advertising by sheer interest and curiosity. It sounds. Well, journalist, no. I mean, I I consider myself to be an analyst, but I think like I think the career that I wanted for myself when I was applying to to the journalism program was something like what Matt Levine is doing now. So I I my undergrad okay. uh, my undergrad. Uh, major was finance and and I worked in investment banking for a very 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 brief amount of time. I flamed out uh, epically, uh, very dramatic. Not well, I wouldn't say dramatically, but I, I flamed out. Um, I want to hear that story. Well, it's, there's not much of a story. I, I just flamed out. Uh, <laughs> so I'm in Finland. I'm working for this free to play gaming company. I get a job at a startup. After the kind of first one that I was at was it sort of went under. Um, and I got a job at a startup and I was like, okay, this is a risky startup. It's very early stage. I should just start blogging to just create artifacts of my knowledge, right? So the, my thinking at the time was like, if this startup goes under, I have this, you know, call it a, uh, a blemish on my CV. And it'd be nice to be able to point to something that I did in that time that showcased my knowledge in the space, right? 
And so I was blogging at night, going to work during the day and blogging at night. I blogged a lot, right? I, I was I was writing, a, but there's very, very analytical blogs about how the freemium economy can work, right? And, and different aspects of like, you know, how retention intersects with LTV and how, you know, basically there are different lenses into the same type of thing. And I was, and it's just very, very sort of analytical and, and kind of like quantitative, right? And so ultimately I decided, okay, I, I like this subject a lot. I like writing about it a lot. Um, I think I know a lot about it. I'm going to write a book. And so I shopped this book concept around to a number of publishers and, and Elsevier, which is like a, a big ac academic publisher, um, agreed to publish the book. And so I wrote the book. And that's when I started Mobile Dev Memo. When the book was coming out, I thought, okay, this book needs a companion website. There needs to be a place where people can go if they really enjoy the book, a place people can go to, to read more about this topic. And I didn't want to send them to my personal blog. So I basically like bought the domain name Mobile Dev Memo. It was inspired by the um, uh, Talking Points Memo blog, the name anyway. And, um, and, and that was it. So I started the, the blog and I, I just you know, was working full time uh, you know, while blogging for a you know, number of companies. I, I basically bounced around Europe for my 20s and, and early 30s. And, you know, we'd get a new job every two years and move to a new country. But this time, I, you know, my wife uh, joined me. And, um, you know, basically, it was just a condition of employment when I would interview somewhere or someplace would reach out to see if, you know, if I wanted to jump ship and join them. I'd say, sure, but I've got to be able to blog. And you've got to be comfortable with that. And if you're not, well, then it's not a good fit. And so, you know, it was always just this, you know, explicit agreement with employers that like I can blog in my spare time and I won't disclose any sensitive information but you have to be comfortable with that and if you're not you can go look at the blogs and there was nothing like scandalous i didn't write gossip right it was just analysis and so every company was always cool with it and i never had any issues with it and then yeah and that's the history and then it kind of grew pretty consistently over time it started out very small i mean you know i remember if i would get 100 page views on a new blog post i thought that was like and anyway it started out pretty small and it just grew consistently over time and then kind of exploded during att the whole att era but yeah i mean now i would say it's it's fairly popular i instituted a paywall at I was surprised by the uh, the revenue. I wasn't expecting it to do that well, and and so now I'm happy to like make that a part of my professional life and not just a hobby. It's pretty amazing how well known Mobile Dev Memo is in the industry. Um, I, I reached out to a few people. Obviously, I know you, and we've in, interacted a little bit on on Twitter. And you've actually helped me. Um, I don't know if you remember about a year and a half ago, I was asking you some questions about various mobile solutions in the market and, and you actually provided some insight that i didn't know and it helped me quite a bit um so thank you for that you've, you've really been a voice for mobile and and the analytics that you provide is, is is pretty deep dive i mean it's definitely not juniorish level content at times um you really have to know your stuff and, and it's it's quite intriguing to see how how much time you dedicate to the content that you create and, and how deep you dig into it so i Great voice for the industry overall, and I think it's been it's been amazing to to see and become more familiar with your content. I have a question for you. So we've we've yesterday asked a couple of questions on Twitter and LinkedIn. I got some great questions. So as, as you were talking about ATT, privacy has been huge. Policies are constantly changing. The way we consent, the way we collect and store, and the way we attribute is going to change over the coming few years and has uh, in recent years. How do you see that? playing out for the mobile space um, and for advertisers? I think it's easy to get fixated here on ATT, right? And ATT, I would say, was an accelerant along the path that digital identity, especially with 
respect to its use in digital advertising, it was an accelerant along that path, but it did not create that path, right? I mean, first of all, I mean, Apple's efforts with privacy go back to 2017, ITP, and they've had a very sort of steady, consistent drumbeat of, of introduced limitations, right? And so even, even, even just within Apple, I mean, ATT was, call it a higher magnitude in terms of limitation, but it was not the first. And it, it made sense within that context. And in fact, it was predictable, right? So I've written, I'll, I'll go back to like 2017, I wrote a piece called The Coming War with Facebook and Apple. And I said, look, um, these two companies are on a collision course. Facebook clearly wants to break out of the platform dependency position that it's in. And, you know, putting aside hardware uh, form factor, because I didn't think Facebook, I mean, Facebook tried making the phone, it didn't work. And I, I didn't think when I wrote that piece in 2017, I didn't think Facebook was going to try to build a phone. My point was I thought that Facebook was going to become so powerful that uh, it had it effectively had no dependency on Apple, even though that's where you know it realizes the the majority of its of its revenue. Right? Um, it's kind of I would I would liken that dynamic to a quote that is 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 often misattributed to, to Trump. Trump Trump is not this clever, <laughs> but um, you know it's if you if if you owe the bank a million dollars, that's your problem. If you owe the bank ten million dollars, that's their problem. If Facebook gets so big and has visibly defied the App Store guidelines enough over time, then those App Store guidelines have no meeting and, and Apple loses control over its ecosystem. And the way I sort of framed that at that point was Facebook Instinct Games, right? It was, it was blatantly distributing games through its app, right? And that, that should be a violation of App Store guidelines, but Apple sort of just permitted it. And I've I think that theme has continued. Um, you know, this is kind of a sidebar, but like I wrote a piece a while back, I think a year and a half ago. I think it's called The App Store Has a Too Big to Fail Problem. And, and I just showcase these examples of companies very, very brazenly flouting the App Store guidelines, right? For instance, it was Roblox with game streaming. Did Roblox get permission to stream games? Well, no. But what, what have they done to sort of defend against, you know, the, the sort of like very, very sort of obvious breach of App Store guidelines? They call their games experiences. Yeah, it's it's bending the yeah bending the rules. Well, breaking the rules, but but bending the uh, the name of the rule. Yeah, and the terminology. A completely some a purely semantic defense of what they're doing, right? And say with Netflix, Netflix's whole games initiative ties access to those products to a Netflix account. You can download the game, and you're hit with a login screen. And Apple said. When they booted Hey out of the App Store, you can't do that. You can't have an app that when the user opens it, all they see is a login screen. There has to be some kind of content available to the user upon download. Now, they've created a bunch of guidelines that sort of allow for that in certain circumstances, right? So um, there's the re reader app rule and there's the uh, multi-platform rule where like, okay, if your content's available on other platforms, it's okay to gate it with a login. Um, and that's, I think, how Netflix would justify this. But the games aren't available on any other platform. The games are only available on mobile. These are mobile games. If the games could be played on any of the platforms that, you know, on which Netflix can be uh, consumed, then that's a different story. But they are mobile-only games. But Apple has had to just kind of like look the other way in these instances, right? Or say, well, yeah, okay, if you squint and look at it this from a different angle, it, it satisfies the guideline. But they don't. They obviously don't. They have a too-big-to-fail problem. These companies get too big to let fail. They get too big to kick off. And I, I, my point in 2017 with the coming war between Apple and Facebook is that, okay, that issue is this, the Netflix stuff is, is much later. That's like 2021, I think. But what my point was, if Facebook gets too big to let fail, Apple will have a really big problem on its hands. 
and Apple must do something to block Facebook's you know, progression along that path. And I said, one of the things that they could do is they could say, you know what? You no longer get access to the IDFA. And, if, and, and, and my point back in 2017 was that if Apple revokes access to the IDFA, Facebook's ads business will materially slow, right? And I said that in 2017. And then I, I wrote a couple of other pieces like 2018, I think, or 2019, before HET was announced. I wrote, um, how would your business survive the deprecation of the IDFA? This is before HET was announced. I wrote another piece five months before HET was announced. And it was a hypothetical, like, what if scenario? What happens when Apple announces at WWDC that they're going to deprecate the IDFA? Right. And I just went through this whole, like, you know, alternative timeline or like hypothetical timeline of what, all the different dominoes that would fall. Right. And, and my point there is not to just, uh, obviously, I called those developments correctly. Right. But my point is just that it was very predictable. Everyone knew this was only a matter of time. Right. I'm not unique in that everyone knew. And the reason I wrote that piece about, Hey, what's going to happen if Apple deprecates the IDFA at WWC this year? It was not that I had any insider knowledge that they would do that. No, and by the way, no one has insider knowledge about Apple. If anybody ever tells you they know what Apple is going to do, they're lying. Apple doesn't leak. They never let leaks, you know, emanate out of the spaceship. It, it's impossible to get a leak about Apple. Not that I've ever tried, but anyone that tell I mean, people tell me this all the time, like, oh, I know what Apple's. And you can't. It's impossible. You heard from someone who says they heard from someone. It's all hearsay, and you're probably being used, frankly. But anyway, so the, the reason I, I wrote that article is because I had come from, I got um, invited to give a talk at like this uh, ad tech company's like retreat, like a sales retreat for their top clients. And, you know, I gave a, my, a, a normal talk, a, you know, talk that it would be pretty, you know, sort of characteristic for me to give. It wasn't about IDFA or anything. But everyone at that event was talking about Apple deprecating the IDFA. And this was February 2020. Everyone was talking about it. And it was like, okay, I think we've hit a moment where it, this is impending, right? And that's why I wrote that piece. So it was, it was wholly predictable. Anyone could have predicted this. And again, it was an accelerant. It, it, was, it, was, it was a higher magnitude restriction than others had been. But it was perfectly consistent with everything Apple had been doing with privacy for years. So that's just, just to sort of underscore the idea that like AGT was not unpredictable. Uh, this has been the sort of the the, the direction of travel uh, for digital identity for for many years. It didn't start with ATT, and and that will continue to be the case. So that now I'll answer your actual question. So like, it's, I'm in Texas. I'm in Austin right now, and and um, there was the, the the weatherman the other day. I mean, it's been the weather's been miserable. It's been over 100 for like 20 days or something. And the weatherman uh, on Twitter said something uh, I found interesting. It was like, this has been the hottest summer on record in Austin, and it'll be the coolest one you ever experience. And well, this is a very this 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 moment in digital advertising, you know, has been subject to severe uh, disruptions related to the flow of data, and it's also the most free flowing it'll ever be. We're never going to go back. Great perspective. We yeah. are never going back. Things are only going to get more restricted over time, right? And I'm not applying any sort of personal judgment to that. Or actually, I will. I think that's a good thing. I right. think there have been just uh, very rampant exploitation of user data. And there's been a total disregard for how the user wants their data to be used uh, to date. In the, and, and look, I think I think it's normal. I mean, I think I think users deserve the right to have privacy. I think user experience needs to reflect that. I think regulation, in some degree, 
needs to, or regulators need, need to be a little bit more educated on the topic overall. I think they're getting there. I feel like there's a little bit more of knowledge happening when these regulations are being put in, but the industry itself is preparing for multiple changes as it relates to privacy. And I think as we use and collect and distribute data, it, it, it's very important that, that we kind of take a step forward and understand how that impacts the business. And I think there are a few companies out there that are preparing and have prepared uh, for that shift. Well, some are, but some are... Ignoring it. But Well, I- ignoring it purposely, right? Um, some are engaged in, I would say, misdirection. Like, if this is going to kill your business, well, then what difference does it make anyway? I mean, I guess you could pivot to selling widgets or something. But, it, it you know, that's, that's I think, the, 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 the bigger takeaway to me th- throughout the ATT saga is that there's a lot of businesses for which ATT is just existential. And, you know, they can make every argument that they want. It's not going to change the reality of, of, the, of the, the momentum of this issue. Now, what I would say, and here's where the nuance gets lost and, and, you know, people kind of accuse me of being like anti-privacy or something, you know, similarly like ridiculous, right? But I would say users should have the full agency to make the decision around the privacy slash utility trade-off. That's what I think. I think advertising, so, and, and, and there's two components to that. One is giving them the choice, right? And then the other is actually educating them about what that is. And my issue with ATT always was that it doesn't do the latter. It just says that this activity, this behavior that Apple characterizes as tracking, right, which is consistent with how a lot of other organizations characterize it, but it's also very specific when you think about the way that Apple personalizes ads when it targets ads, right? But Apple presented that choice to the user as, as having no benefit in the affirmative, right? Why would you ever opt in? Why would you do it? These companies are going to track you across apps and websites. The language is very, first of all, it's pithy. There's not enough room for real, you know, contextual delivery. And it was also intimidating. Of course, if you read that, no reasonable person in the right mind would say uh, yes. No reasonable person in the right mind who didn't, you know, understand the underlying dynamics of digital advertising, no reasonable person in the right mind would opt in. They just wouldn't. Correct. There's no and benefit. And- Present. And I've said it before. I mean, I've, I've been sarcastic about it, but I'm, I'm all for handing over my, my data. I'm all for having consenting to using my, my fingerprint, my data, my usage, my online behavior, if it means I'm getting better and more right. relevant ads. And exactly. I, the, the general population, like if I even speak to my siblings or I speak to my parents and you tell them, hey, we, we can see what you're doing, they, they kind of freak out. But if I tell them it's in order for us to provide better experiences, more relevant advertising, then they, they sort of get it. Um, but the general population has no idea how it works. Yeah, well, there's, there's a spectrum here of, of specificity in terms of behavioral observation, right? So if a platform tells me, look, we're going to give us permission to receive conversion notifications or, or if you just think about it in the layman's in the layman's terms right so without using ad tech jargon give us permission to see what you buy on the internet and if you do that we're going to serve you ads for stuff that you're probably going to like or that that you're that we're going to show you at more ads for stuff that you're likely to uh purchase than we are ads for things that you're unlikely to purchase right i mean that that to me i think you'd have an opt-in rate that was very high now if you tell a person 
give us access to your geolocation at all times. And we may sell that to the police. You're going to say, no, of course not. No, no one. I mean, that, that, it, it, there's a spectrum here of, of granularity and real life impact, a, a real life consequences, right? Like the real life consequence. Now, he, here's where, you know, you could find a whole bunch of edge cases. So you could say, okay, well, if I get access to your entire, you know, internet purchasing history, I can learn a lot of things about you, some of which are sensitive, right? So like, okay, if I'm buying prayer rugs, right? Um, and and you, I stop buying groceries during Ramadan. Well, okay, now I know your, uh, your religion, potentially, or, you know, you could find any number of examples. I'm not saying that's a bad, so I'm not, first of all, I just want to say it's not a bad thing to be Muslim. I'm just saying you can learn that about a person through the purchases. So if you get enough access to this and there's enough volume, you, you, can, you can learn things in the absence of purchases and you can find correlations with some types of purchases with other, type, with other characteristics, right? So there needs to be a limit. There's got to be some reasonable limit. Now, there's, of course, there's restrictions you place on that. It's not carte blanche. But the point is people could opt into that and probably feel like if it was limited in some way, like you think about a privacy budget, you could opt in and, and feel safe or you could, you could feel like, okay, well, I'm getting something in return for this. And the data is not uh, personally disastrous for me. In, in, in right. Any, I, right? I, I agree. I think there needs to be a trade-off. And I think there needs to be um, language that's easily understood by the general population so that they know what they are and are not opting into. Um, I, I think the, the language, when you look at any of the policies, it is a bit confusing. Great perspective. I've enjoyed this, Eric. This has been amazing. I, I do have to call time, unfortunately. And I feel like... Um, both my, my call with Terry and you probably requires more time. I, I really should make this an hour, and I think I will moving forward. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting uh, in me and, and joining the pod. I would love to do this again, maybe dig into um, more topics, definitely pushing this out to, to an hour moving forward. I appreciate it. I hope to speak to you soon, Eric. Yeah, cheers. Good luck with, uh, with the account and the podcast and everything. It's been really fun to watch you uh, uh, gain momentum there. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Good luck to you as well. Yep. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the AdTech God Pod. Stay connected with us for more insights, trends, and interviews in the realm of AdTech. Don't miss out on our latest updates. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Keep the conversation going and stay at the forefront of ad tech innovation.